Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Dennis Kucinich on the Division of Light and Power. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. You can sort through past shows by episode number, author's last name, book title, or sort by category. For instance, select the current events and politics category for my conversation with Matt Taibbi on Hate, Inc. This is Matt Taibbi, author of Hate, Inc., and you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Dennis Kucinich is a former U.S. congressman, former mayor of Cleveland, and a past presidential candidate who's just written a book about the early part of his political career, including that time leading the city of Cleveland and battling corruption along the way. The book is called The Division of Light and Power. Dennis, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, and I sure appreciate this opportunity to speak with you about uh, The Division of Light and Power. Absolutely. This is a fascinating book to read, and I have to admit, it read a little bit more like a uh, government and political thriller than it did somebody recounting their history and politics. Did you intend to have the cover look a little bit more like a James Patterson, David Baldacki, or John Grisham novel? Uh, It's interesting you say that because that's some of the comparisons being made. Uh, Look, this story is a story about corporate espionage and sabotage and bank co-conspirators and a mob-directed assassination uh, plot and and more. And it's everything in it's documented. So uh, the fact that uh, it's being compared to uh, the, the kind of uh, uh, pot boiler uh, novelesque uh, writings of top authors, I, I'm, it's very flattering. Uh, but, you know, I, I just I'm just telling the story. I'll let the public decide where it where the story falls in terms of uh, uh, all the others that have been told, uh, which are either true or or fiction. This one is true. How long did it take you to write this book? This is not a short one. It's over 500 pages, but it's pretty juicy from beginning to the end. So does this take you a couple of years to get through? I started the book in November of 1979. Wow. And I, I, what, what you see in the seventh draft of the Division of Light and Power is the book as it's published. Uh, I started uh, many times, stopped, uh, but in 2018, I just decided I'm going to get this done. <laughs> And so I kept writing uh, a final draft until it was complete. And I'm, uh, I'm very grateful for the public response to the book. It's very heartening because people are seeing in it some stories about their own communities. They're making comparisons to things that either happened or are happening right now, or they're concerned that, uh, you know, an attempt might be made to st- steal their water system or their electric system and they're looking to this book for uh how they can defend the 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 community's interests so i i'm finding the response to it really uh, exciting and at the same time very humbling how did your high school football career help to prepare you for a career in politics dennis well it uh it did help me uh, but not uh i i wasn't uh, thinking at the time that i'd have a current politics when i was a a four foot nine inch uh, and ninety eight pound varsity quarterback, <laughs> uh, who, uh, as I mentioned in the book, the only reason I I lettered 
is because the first and second string quarterbacks were out on injuries. And I had a chance to play because I was the only other person who knew the plays uh, to be called. So, you know, I, I developed a kind of steely resilience as a child uh, growing up in an inner city family that bounced around a lot from place to place, neighborhood to neighborhood. Uh, and anyone who grew up uh, particularly small uh, for one's age uh, knows the kind of, uh, you, you know, the kinds of situations you can find yourself in uh, that can be at once humorous and a little bit dangerous. Uh, but I, I, it was a toughening up process uh, in the streets, uh, playing football. And yes, it was very good preparation for a career in politics. To say that you were tough is maybe a bit of an understatement. You end up getting elected to the Cleveland City Council at the age of 23 before you had actually graduated from college. What were the state of politics in Cleveland when you took your seat on the council in the late 1960s? Well, it was uh, pretty chummy with interest groups uh, who uh, uh, basically subverted the city council and uh, uh, and were able to get privileges, uh, you know, licenses, franchises, uh, because of the way they applied the council and the rest of the government. Uh, you know, that was a uh, foreign to me when I got in as a 23 year old elected member of the city council. Um, I, I, I saw people who were, they had different reasons for being in public life than I had. And I was being taken under, under the wing of well-intentioned, you know, lovely people who wanted to show me ways that I could make money and enrich myself while I'm a public servant. As one of them said, this is all, you know, legitimate, but, you know, here's the opportunities you can get, you can have. Uh, I, that wasn't my purpose in getting into public life. And so the reader, I take the reader with me on this journey of a young person in politics, elected at age 23, seeing Funny things happening with the city's electric system, not being able to make repairs and and having these private utility lobbyists who were who were blocking the city from making repairs to its own electric system, who were stopping the city from being able to buy power from outside when we needed it because our generators weren't working, who made available their power at triple the cost, blew a hole in, in the city's uh, municipal electric system budget. And we're really trying to take down our municipal electric system so they could uh, have a monopoly inside the city of Cleveland, raise everybody's electric rates, and help uh, pay off their rising debt uh, for nuclear power plants they sh should have never built. They were neither used nor useful. So, you know, this was an eye opener. As a young person, I'm in politics and I'm looking and I'm going, whoa, so this is what it's about. But I decided I'm not going to play that game. I'm going to stand up for the people. I'm going to say what I'm uh, speak out about what I'm saying. And then I found out that the city was determined to sell our municipal electric system to this private utility monopoly, which is undercutting the uh, city system at every turn. And he wanted to sell it at a cut rate bargain basement price. And then I went, whoa, wait a minute. No, stop. And I developed a plan to block the sale. Well, at that exact time, a high powered rifle shot misses my head by a fraction of an inch. And I was suddenly introduced to another level of politics in the city. 
of what happens when you challenge uh, powerful vested interests. And this was prior to you being elected mayor, too, correct? Yeah, you were still on the city I council was, at this I was, point. I was uh, uh, the clerk of the Cleveland Municipal Court, uh, which you know, basically um, a record-keeping position. And, uh, and the only thing I was involved in, other than keeping track of the runs, hits, and errors at the courthouse, was the municipal electric system. Uh, raising questions about why is it being sold? What's going on here? Why are we giving this uh, private utility monopoly? And why is it being sold for so cheap? Why isn't there a competitive bid? And on and on and on. So the reader is given a chance to join me in delving into this mystery. And I, st- I blocked the sale with the help of 30,000 signatures from the people of Cleveland, big deal. Meantime, I end up running for mayor. People wanted me to run for mayor. I get elected. I, I just say, okay, forget the sale of Muni Light. Not going to happen. And that's when the next part of the story comes in where the utility, the private utility, puts the screws to the city, slaps liens on property to uh, uh, to pay to try to secure payment for the rising uh, elect- electric bill, which the city had because they had to buy power from the private company. There's no other way to to run our own electric system whenever we needed uh, extra power. And the previous mayor said, "Well, he wanted to sell our municipal electric system in order to pay off a light bill." The system was worth a quarter of a billion dollars, and he was using the pretext of an $18 million light bill to say, well, we've got to sell the system because we can't pay the light bill. And and everyone was fine with that. The media was fine with that. The political establishment was fine. The corporate media was fine. I wasn't fine with it. I challenged it. So I'm, I'm now a mayor. And the biggest bank in Cleveland, in the state for that matter, tells me, you either sell this electric system or we're not going to renew the city's loans on that I hadn't even taken out. They were taken out by my, my predecessor. But if you do that, we'll, we'll give you another $50 million to spend any way you like. We'll give you $50 million in credit. I said, no. They put the city of Cleveland into, into default. They, and then they said, well, pass the tax. We'll take the city of Cleveland out of default. We passed the tax. They reneged on their promise, kept the city into default. <coughs> till after I left office. This story is a story of corruption on a level that uh, most people have never seen. But because you know, I was a mayor, I'm able to tell the story. And, uh, and it was a conspiracy against the interests of the people of Cleveland. I mean, all I wanted was to make sure that people had an electric system which charged 20% less than the private power company gave the city savings when it purchased electricity or when it had electricity for street lighting and city facilities, saved millions a year in tax dollars. <clears throat> My obligation was to people Cleveland, not to the banks, not to the utility monopoly, not to the media, which got advertising revenues from uh, the utilities and the banks. So it was a battle royal in Cleveland. And this story is a cautionary tale on what happens if people don't fight back. If people don't stand up, you just get rolled over. And these interests then are able to steal what belongs to the people. They didn't do that in Cleveland because 
uh, I had the opportunity to take a stand. Dennis, what was it like living in and fighting so hard for a city like Cleveland in the mid-1970s when it was known uh, around the country and around the world as America's bombing capital? Well, I, I, you know, at that point, that's when I was clerk of the Cleveland Municipal Courts. And it, it, the, the war between uh, gangland elements was a serious matter. Uh, you know, the there there was a bombing taking place uh, every it seemed every few weeks uh, but it was more often than that cleveland had that reputation as a bombing capital but underneath that was a war for control of the rackets a war for control of of gambling of vice prostitution of of drugs of whatever and these factions some of them had their hooks into cleveland city hall and so uh, I arrive on the scene, uh, this very young person, 31 years old, the youngest mayor elected uh, in any big city. And I just said, you know, I'm, you know, this, this way of doing business, uh, of looking the other way when, when uh, crimes are being committed, that's not going to happen anymore. And so as a result, you know, there was increased danger the head of police intelligence came to me at one point and said, look, uh, there's an assassination plot uh, going on that it's targeted you. Uh, and in a later meeting, I said, what's going on here? Why is this happening? He said, well, uh, this is about Muni Light. You're stopping people from making a lot of money and uh, they want you out of the way. This was literally your police lieutenant who had told you this, that yeah, it was all about of- Muni Light that was potentially costing you your life. Right. This was the head of police intelligence who received information from the Maryland State Police who had an undercover agent who discovered this this plot. Uh, Later on, all this was confirmed uh, by a U.S. Senate subcommittee investigation into organized crime in the Midwest, uh, where uh, the testimony was given at a congressional hearing uh, that I was thwarting uh, certain dishonest uh, uh, business people and and a criminal element. Uh, look, I just wanted to represent the people of Cleveland and stand up for them. Uh, you, you know, I, I wasn't, uh, uh, I, you know, I didn't take, I, I wasn't holier than now. I wasn't trying to uh, pretend that uh, I was a saint. I just had to stand up for the public interest. And in doing that, I incurred the wrath not only of the most powerful corporations in the state and city, uh, but also of mob elements who, Uh, may have uh, had some connection on that. I don't, you know, I'm not particularly sure on that, but uh, somebody was paying uh, the bill for the workings of of an assassination plot. So as the city was on the verge of defaulting on millions in loans to various banks and with pressure still on to sell Muni Light to CEI, a connection between CEI and Cleveland Trust was discovered, and it really changed the course of this war for you. What was this connection? Well, it, uh, you know, in a way, uh, it was found out that CEI and Cleveland Trust were like Siamese business twins. Uh, the utilities are cash cows that banks love to have. There is a regular cash flow. In, in addition to that, uh, directly or through its nominees, uh, Cleveland Trust was a major shareholder. 
in the utility. So they stood to benefit if there was a monopoly. They stood to cash in. Uh, they held, uh, I think, 25 million in pension funds. They, uh, they were the bank for that uh, Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company. They had uh, two and three board members uh, who sat on the Cleveland Trust Board and sat on the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company Board simultaneously. So yeah, they, they had identical business interests and the bank was using its power to try to extort the electric system out of the city that uh, the uh, private power company wasn't able to do through hook and or crook. Um, so the, every chapter is, is about this, this interplay of forces that are trying at each turn to find a new inventive way to take away the people's electric system. And it, it was um, extraordinary being in the middle of that. I mean, you know, it's one thing to write the story, to have lived it and have the chance to share it with the reader is a blessing, but to, to, to live it was mind blowing. Every th time we thought we had a solution to save the electric system, they tried to thwart it. Every time we thought we had a solution to avoid default. It was set aside because the only, the only thing of value the bank would take was our municipal electric system. They didn't want city property. Obviously, they didn't want income tax revenue. They wanted Munilite and Munilite alone. I mean, you think about it. I said, look, we have all these things that the city owns. We have billions of dollars of assets that we can use to pay off a measly $5 million loan to this Cleveland Trust Bank and, and all the other banks. It was, it was um, um, a total of 15 million, but they wanted Muni Light. They didn't want anything else. They didn't, and, and when you think about it, it, it underscores the depth of corruption that existed in Cleveland at the time. And I'm sure exists in other communities right now, but Nobody's around to tell the story. I just happen to have the opportunity to be an insider and to tell the story of how I fought City Hall from the inside. Well, one of the ridiculous parts about their insistence on gaining Muni Light is they were doing so while also swearing that Muni Light wasn't worth anything, despite the fact that you could prove that Muni Light was turning more than a million dollars of profit per year in the previous couple of years. Well, and, and, you know, that that was a central point. And I and I said that on the evening of default when I was in a live interview, live on the six o'clock news. And I was being asked, Dennis, why won't you accept this offer of 50 million dollars in, in new credit? And 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 you're you're being told that the city's going to go into default if you don't sell Muni Lake. Why don't you just sell it? And I said, uh, you know, it's a significant offer, especially since people say Muni Light's not worth anything. <laughs> Why do they go through all this trouble of, of subverting the system of corporate espionage and sabotage, of, of complicity with the media, of bank co-conspirators, of, of trying to wreck the finances of the city all over a light system that was worth nothing? I mean, the, the unmasking of that obvious lie was a, a critical moment in the book because the system was worth at least a quarter of a billion dollars plus the impact of cheaper electricity. You know, if, if you get rid of the yardstick in Cleveland, that meant that the 
private utilities able to raise rates initially by $25 million, or let's see, let me just do the math real quick. Uh, they'd be able to raise rates by $5 million a year, but then that starts to balloon because there's no competition. So over a period of time, you know, we're already 40 some years past that period. You're talking of hundreds of millions of dollars just in rates alone, doesn't even get into what people are paying in taxes, the charge for increased street lighting, the charge for increased, uh, 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 the increased charges for city ser uh, services, city facilities, hundreds of millions or more. This was a, this was a billion dollar at least deal. Uh, and I, and we were being told, oh, this system is worth nothing. Yeah, right. It's like, you know, the brick, uh, it's, it's like, uh, uh, the mentality of swindle. One of the reasons why this story resonates for me, Dennis, is because I've watched over the last 15 to 20 years as various municipalities, state governments, federal governments have really sold our infrastructure to private business interests for that quick buck. In Chicago, they sold off the parking meters to private interests. So many toll roads across this country have been sold to uh, not just companies here in America, but across the world for that quick buck. As you continue to examine the landscape here in America, are you more optimistic or pessimistic with regards to our governments doing the right thing and holding on to things of value versus chasing that quick buck to try and eliminate a short-term debt? Uh, I'd like to answer that in two parts. The first part is to hearken back to the wisdom of the mayor of Cleveland who founded Munilite at the turn of the 20th century, Mayor Tom L. Johnson. Mayor Johnson said that I believe in, uh, in ownership of public service facilities, of parks, of water works, uh, of electric systems, because if you do not own them, they will in time own you. They will corrupt your politics rule your institutions, and finally, destroy your liberties. Today, with the American Rescue Plan money being infused into cities and cities building up their spending, it won't be long when, that plug, when the plug is pulled on that money, cities are going to start looking for other sources of revenue, and there will be a new effort all across the land towards privatization of electric systems, of water systems, of sewer systems, of various city services. That is coming. And this book, The Division of Light and Power, is going to be a shield for citizens who want to protect the interests of their own community, knowing, look, we've already paid for these things once. Why do we have to sell it and then end up pay paying more for it again? Because once you take a city facility out of public control, you're at the mercy of these companies that will charge whatever they can get away with. And there's zero regulation. You're, 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 you know, when the public controls it, at least you can elect or defeat officials based on what their uh, position is. So I think that we are now in an era uh, where, um, interestingly enough, I've written a book that is not just about what happened yesterday, but past is prologue. 15 to 20 years after you fought like hell to keep CEI from buying Muni Light, Dennis, the city of Cleveland finally started to officially acknowledge the sacrifice you made in keeping Muni Light with Cleveland. You admit at the end of the book that it cost you your political career, your health, and two marriages, amongst other things. Knowing all of that, would you handle the situation the same way if you could do it all over again? 
and why or why not? Look, you can't recut the past. You know, I, I took a stand, which if I had to, I'd take again. You know, who are we is really a deeper question. What do we stand for? You know, it's easy to stand for things when you don't have to pay a price. The difficulty is when everything's on the line and you hold fast to uh, the to the faith of in democracy, hold fast to faith in the people, to a commitment you made to protect their interests. Um, no, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't change anything. I mean, does that mean that I don't have a sense of sadness about the impact on my personal life? Look, <laughs> I had two marriages that were sacrificed. One to my ambition, and the other one to the trauma that occurred during the term as mayor. I mean, you know, it's, uh, you know, the good news is that, um, you know, I'm friends with both Helen, who I write about at the beginning, and Sandy, extraordinary women. Politics is so tough on families. It is brutal on spouses. And, you know, the public really doesn't care about that. I mean, they don't care what you have to deal with in your daily life. Uh, but I write about that in the book, and I write about it without uh, any varnish. I, I'm <laughs> very straightforward in uh, explaining what I felt were, you know, were my own failings. And at the same time, the exceptional nature of the women who I was privileged to uh, be with, you know, but... It's a really tough career for spouses. And, and I hope that, you know, the people who read that, uh, maybe you'll get a little bit more insight into what other political spouses uh, end up going through. Because it is, forget the glamour of it. it, it it's it, that's silly. Uh, it's the day-to-day -day grind that, that families of politicians are pulled into. Uh, when you have a commitment to public life, that's what you do. But it doesn't mean there isn't a price to be paid by those around you. Very well said there, and I think that's a great way to end today's conversation. He is Dennis Kucinich, formerly, of course, a U.S. congressman, Democratic presidential candidate, and mayor of Cleveland, who has just written about the trials and tribulations of the latter and his start in politics in a new book titled The Division of Light and Power. Dennis, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this powerful book. Well, you know, I appreciate this opportunity, and Thanks for your questions. I mean, a little bit more probing than ones that I've had, and they um, uh, give me a chance to uh, open up a little bit more about some of the personal dimensions. So thank you for that. And I appreciate you encouraging your listeners and viewers to go get the book and to see you know, what we can do to actually save our democracy. Stand up, speak out. Damn straight, Dennis. Take care. Bye now. Join me next time when I speak with neuroscience expert and science storyteller Jenny Smith on Overloaded, how every aspect of your life is influenced by your brain chemicals. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and subscribe for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Good day.